Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Opera After Dark. Oh, good. I am no Maria Callas. What a fun segue. <laughs> <laughs> However, we're going to talk a lot about her today. Gosh, you know, I just really wish there was a way that I could see Maria Callas perform on stage. Like, I wish I, wish I could be there in the theater and see her perform. Well, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, that was something that I got to do, sort of, on Saturday. Oh, what a coincidence. What a weird coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Naomi went to the much-talked-about Maria Callas hologram performance. <laughs> I did. how was it? First impression. I have so many thoughts about this. Well, apparently this is a thing that people are doing now because I feel like I read somewhere that they're doing a tour where it'll be a concert with the hologram of Whitney Houston. It's yes, the same company, happening. actually. I feel weird about this. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I feel weird about it. No, it's it's totally legitimate, I think, to feel weird about it because... There's like some rock bands, too. Mm-hmm. I feel like Queen is doing something or other. I don't know. Oh, I don't think it was Queen, but there was another rock yeah. band that is also touring in hologram form. I'm sorry, Naomi, I interrupted you. It's okay. Um, yeah, it is. I had a lot of thoughts as a person who spent a lot of time studying both opera and technology. When I heard that this concert was coming to Vancouver and I was going to be in British Columbia at that time, I said I absolutely must go see this just out of like sheer curiosity. Well, before we yeah. deep dive into this concert, because I have a lot of questions, um, just in case there's anyone listening, and if this is you, please don't feel ashamed about this. If there's anyone out there who doesn't know who Maria Callas was or anything about her life, why don't you give us like a three to five minute summary? <laughs> <laughs> The rundown on Maria yeah. Callas. Yeah, rundown on Maria I mean, Callas. I, La I don't, mean to throw, I don't mean to throw in any spoilers, but she did die like in the 60s, right? So it's like very few people living well, would she, have seen her. She died her. in the 70s. She died in the 70s. So 1977 is when she died, and she was 53 years old when she died. So she was born in 1923. And yeah, so there's not a whole lot of people, I would say there's not a huge portion of the population still alive that saw her and not just because she died very young, but also because, you know, you had to be in a place where she was performing in order to see her. So Maria Callas is, for those of you who are not too sure who she is, she is probably one of the most popular opera singers in history mm-hmm. and she was a soprano and she lived at a time when audio recording was definitely a thing that happened and the technology was good enough that we have actually quite a few recordings of her we don't have as much video of her although there is some that does exist so in a way kind of opera history is lucky that she lived at a time where you could capture both audio and video, but it was certainly not at the like 4K high definition quality that we have today. (laughs) Right. Right. And so she was very popular in her lifetime. But the other thing that makes her so interesting is that she's almost more popular since she's died Mm -hmm. than she ever was in her life. And that's saying a lot because she was very popular by the peak of her career well there's all this mystery and like a lot of sadness and like glamour wrapped up in the idea of maria Callas, right definitely i think she really like brings a whole new meaning to the word diva and actually her her kind of beloved nickname was la divina mm-hmm. right and 
her life was very interesting and she was a very complicated woman. I highly recommend you can like deep dive reading about her in many different places. There was a documentary that came out very recently about her. She was actually born Maria Anna Cecilia Sophia Kalogaropoulos. Good. Nice. That was good. I'm not a native <laughs> or fluent Greek speaker at all, so I think that last name is approximately correct, but... I think it sounded good. And so her stage name was Maria Callas, and she was actually born in New York City. I did not know this until I started reading up about her, and she was born somewhere along Fifth Avenue. At the time, it was called the Flower Hospital, but apparently now it's the Terrence Cardinal Cook Healthcare Center. And interesting. Yeah, her parents were Greek and their family had some kind of nasty split when she was quite young. And so she actually lived most of her childhood in Greece because mm-hmm. the family split and she went with the parent that went to live in, back in Greece. So she was raised mostly in Europe, even though she was born here. And she had training pretty young in music and she was apparently like a really determined and almost like like stubborn child and how she approached her music lessons both as a child and as she then like went into more serious career focused training and she got her start um i think she sang her some of her earliest roles were at the greek opera but um the thing that is kind of interesting about her is that when she started singing, she was actually quite young, like professionally singing, and she was singing really heavy roles. Like she was singing in Die Valkyra, like really oh big gosh. stuff when she was quite young. And then there was a conductor who, who heard her singing and said to her, I think you should be singing more Italian repertoire, uh, specifically bel canto. And she said, that's crazy. Like I'm a, I'm a Wagnerian soprano. I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And then there's this famous story about how I think it was at La Scala. It might have been somewhere else, but a big opera company where a soprano pulled out of I Puritani at like the last second and they convinced Maria Callas to learn the part in like less than a week and then step into that role. And as soon as she did that, it was kind of clear to her and to everybody else that this was like the repertoire made for her. And so she kind of switched trajectories and started pursuing more Italianate repertoire, the bel canto and um, Puccini and a little bit of a little bit of Verdi. Right. And so it was kind of like a backwards trajectory to many singers today where they like build into Wagnerian roles, whereas she was kind of started out of the gate with Wagner and then made a switch more toward like the Spinto Soprano repertoire. Mm -hmm. She's also a soprano that basically people talk about how she is like the ultimate definition of a Spinto Soprano. So it's a the Spinto category in opera, we talk about it being kind of between a lighter voice that you would find in, say, Mozartian singing and a Wagnerian, like, heavy, hefty voice. And the thing that usually separates a Spinto from all other categories or all other types of voices is that there's, like, this kind of metallic edge to the sound, to the actual quality of the sound. And because it has this, like, sharp, metallic, steely sound quality it can actually like slice through the orchestra so even if you're not making a a huge volume of sound the actual quality of the sound itself is such that it just like cuts right through to the back of the auditorium and so people talk a lot about her being the the greatest spinto that ever lived Mm -hmm. and she was definitely a woman kind of shrouded in mystery she had a very big personality when she first started singing in new york the press made a huge deal about a rivalry between her and renata tabaldi so there was a lot of news made out of this supposed rivalry between the two singers and renata tabaldi's another beloved soprano from that same age or time period didn't she just pass away tabaldi died yeah. over a decade ago mm-hmm. oh maybe yeah. i'm confusing you're thinking of morella Freni. Oh, right. Yeah, she just passed away. Yeah. Yeah. So the press made this big deal about her having this, like, like bloody, vicious rivalry with Renata Tabaldi. And people compared their voices a lot. And one thing that people talked about was that how 
Renata Tabaldi had a very pure timbre, very beautiful sound, and very even from top to bottom. And they said, so people who loved Tabaldi said it was like a perfect voice from mm-hmm. top to bottom, beautiful timbre, just gorgeous and consistent. But then the people that don't like Tabaldi or would side with Callis would say, that, well, Tabaldi's voice might be consistent, but it's lifeless, right? And they would right. say that, like, mm-hmm. wasn't expressive enough. Whereas people who criticized Maria Callas's voice would say, well, she has pitch issues and the, the tone quality is not even from the top to the bottom. So you kind of get a very different sound in the voice depending on what range she's singing. And then the people who loved Callas would say it doesn't matter that she has these vocal problems she's so expressive that you can you can forgive her everything because of how expressive she is mm-hmm. right and so some people say that the expression was all in the voice itself so you didn't even need to see her to experience this like amazing expressive voice and then other people said that and i've actually had people say to me yeah the voice actually had at times like kind of ugly timbre like some people really don't like the sound of her voice, Maria Callas, but they said if you ever saw her, you would have just been like mesmerized, right? Mm -hmm. So there's kind of two ways you can go about it, but the long and the short of it is that despite whatever vocal faults you might find in her singing, she got away with it and was actually like in a reverse sort of way loved for it because it made the voice very unique. It was very expressive. It, she was a stage animal, so she, like, kind of just chewed the scenery when she was on stage. Like, it was, she was so magnetic as a performer that people loved her. And they loved her then, and they love her now. And when she died, her recordings became this almost, like, fetishized um, legacy of who she was in person, captured on recording. She also was... She herself called herself heavy at the beginning of her career, Mm -hmm. and she went through this phase where she lost a ton of weight in order to achieve a certain appearance. And a lot of people claim that when she lost the weight, it changed the voice quite a bit and that it could have possibly Mm -hmm. led to her kind of the end of her career, which was kind of prematurely cut short. She didn't have a career as long as other singers have because she started encountering some vocal problems. So people talk about like the sad kind of sudden end of her career and some people blame the weight gain. People have other theories. But then she also had like a very complicated personal life too because she ended up, she was married um, to Giovanni Battista Meneghini and then while she was still married to him, she got into this affair with Aristotle Onassis that I think lasted a couple of years. She didn't marry Onassis, but then Onassis ended up breaking it off with her when he got involved with Jackie Kennedy. Right. And so that was huge gossip fodder at the time because here are these three extremely famous people. Extremely famous, yes. And the the story was that Maria uh, was brokenhearted by this and that um, Ari Onassis was like the person that she loved for the rest of her life and all of that. So Onassis did leave her for Jackie Kennedy, but some sources say that long into his relationship with Jackie, he would like meet secretly with Maria. Mm-hmm. And oh, Maria was living dang. in Paris at the time. I don't know if that's true, but there is skepticism. So how did she die, Maria? Well, after uh, her career sort of ended, she moved to Paris and basically isolated herself and her whole death is sort of shrouded in in mystery she died very suddenly and mysteriously at the age of 53 Hmm. oh so still pretty young see i I didn't realize that she was no longer performing when she died i thought she died like mid-career no no she was no longer performing at that time and the thing is um a lot of people believe that the cause of death was heart attack but nothing was sort of ever proven so a lot of people think that you know she to them was like the epitome of of, you know visidarte and tosca that she lived for her art and she like lived and died on the stage when she couldn't do that anymore she some people think that she took her own life Mm -hmm. it's it's unclear and i think that sort of adds to like the mystique Mm -hmm. of maria callas right it's definitely a cult following 
Definitely. Which leads to people resurrecting a dead woman. <laughs> in quote-unquote holographic form. In holographic form. form to perform and make money for... Who God knows who. I'm assuming yeah. not her estate. Well, I don't know how that works. Yeah, I'm not sure. But you went. I went. Was it sold out? I think it was near sold out. The house was very full, so I wouldn't be surprised if it was sold out. Tell us about your experience. <laughs> right. We Can you start by, like, setting the scene? Ooh, we yeah. want full details. Like, Okay. It was, was it in a big theater? It was in the, I would say, the largest, most prestigious symphonic hall in Vancouver, oh which God. is the <laughs> capital city of British Columbia, mm-hmm. Canada. And this hall is called the Orpheum and it's really interesting because on the outside it has like a very I would say like 60s modernist aesthetic to the building Mm -hmm. but then Mm -hmm. when you go inside it's like like an old school like very elaborately decorated hall so it almost has like the lobby of the Orpheum and the areas like outside of the auditorium almost look like they're they're not quite rococo or baroque but they have that feel of like the vaulted ceilings and the stonework and the marble floors and like that kind of thing and inside the auditorium itself it's definitely not as big as the met i think it only has one balcony so Mm -hmm. it certainly doesn't seat three thousand people but it is it's the biggest symphonic hall in the city i think Mm -hmm. and so it is like the most prestigious place you could have a concert. It's the home of the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. So it was like a big deal that this thing was there. And and nearly the, sold out, if not sold out. Right. I'm assuming it was with live orchestra? Yes. So the way that it works and what you're kind of buying into to go see is a holographic vision, mm. manifestation of Maria Callas mm. singing with a live orchestra accompanying her all right so this in and of itself makes you have to you have to like stop and think about the technology that has gone into this right because what i think they did and i haven't quite verified the exact way they've done it but i spent a lot of time looking around and trying to figure out and talking with my husband about like how do we think they did this and it seems they like computer analyzed recordings of her and either stripped away like the orchestration and background sound and tried to like preserve her her vocalizing either that or they analyzed all of these recordings and then they like almost reconstructed the timbre of her voice and like following as closely as possible to specific recordings of her but i suspect that it was almost like a combination of of both because there was one moment in casta diva where i could like very faintly hear in some places the chorus where the chorus is supposed to sing but like it wasn't actually a full-on chorus and so i thought oh did they just not successfully strip out all of the chorus from those recordings um or am i imagining things like i don't think i'm imagining things yeah i Um, wonder if even like maybe they had a way of just reducing even if they couldn't strip away the existing orchestral sound on the recording they could just reduce it significantly and like suppress with, it or something yeah with the live orchestra playing obviously much louder than the recorded orchestra right there it it didn't matter until you could hear the chorus when there was no chorus present i don't know like i really think they did a lot of work to isolate her voice in one way or another like that mm-hmm. was pretty clear to me and they definitely, I would say, like maintained the unique aspect of her voice. And so I was talking with my husband about, because he was asking questions like, do you think they like tempo corrected or pitch corrected and things like that in order to make it possible for this hologram to be accompanied by mm-hmm. an orchestra? And I said that, well, I, th- it's possible that they tempo corrected, like, I think they probably did as little as possible to pitch correct because it was very callous-like in the fact that there were some pitch issues. You know, expressive, yes, for sure, but just inconsistent in some of the actual pitch. And so, and I think that was a thing that was a part of Callous's voice that you just had to get over. 
So my question, just so it's clear in my head. So you walk in, the audience sits down, there's a stage, the orchestra mm-hmm. is sort of milling around. Was there any kind of announcement? Or like the conductor came out, he like shook hands with the concert master, got ready, and then the lights dimmed, and then all of a sudden like this ghost hologram of, of flashes? Essentially, yeah. Like the the orchestra was set up a little bit differently, so they weren't going to fan all across the stage. They uh-huh. were kind of split in half so that there was almost like a hollow area in the middle and for the ghost to go for the ghost but Uh i'll get to why (laughs) it had to be that way and then there was no announcement there was no no like master of ceremonies or host nothing like that the concert master walked out tuned up the orchestra then the conductor walked out and actually i cannot pronounce her name but she's the she's a composer conductor who wrote the score for world of warcraft oh Um, cool and oh, I don't know. I can't remember her name or, or how to pronounce it, but she's very famous in like video game music, which was really interesting that they got her in to be the conductor for this. Mm-hmm. But she's a conductor, but has conducted a lot of her own scores, and she wrote the score for World of Warcraft and a bunch of other um, okay. very high-profile video games. Anyway. I have an idea as to why they may have incorporated her. Oh. I, it may be because... When you go to see, I'm I'm fairly certain there are World of Warcraft, and I know for a fact there are Final Fantasy, like live orchestra performances where you I, can yeah, go. I've done one and, of those. And oftentimes they they're matched up to some sort of video projection of some kind. It's similar to like when you know different symphony orchestras will do Star Wars or Harry Potter where they show the film but with live orchestra playing. Mm. And in order to conduct one of those, um, I went to see when Lord of the Rings was at Lincoln Center um, mm-hmm. at the, is it the Coke Theater that the ballet is in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I went to see it there and I was sitting up in one of the balconies and so looking down into the pit, you can see in front of the or- uh, in front of the conductor there's essentially a screen that shows uh the tempo and it's almost like it's kind of like a metronome type thing but it's it's like a screen like an ipad or a larger screen and you basically see like the tempo beats like rolling across the screen and it has different signals for when you're supposed to introduce a different part or what have you and i would guess that because they have this existing track of Maria Callas, you have to be so precise with your tempi. So she would have had that experience if she had done a a World of Warcraft or whatever else. Um, And I'm guessing they would use the same mechanism for this. I suspect they did. But before we move on too much, I just have to say for the record, Elspeth has told me about her experience singing for one in one of those concerts. You'll have to tell us about it sometime here on the podcast. Not right now because we're talking about Callus, but it was wild. Yes. Gosh, that would be like a dream. If I could be in the chorus for a Lord of the Rings live performance, was, that would be it was so re- much fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, but moving on. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about We'll do a whole we'll, episode we'll do, on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. On, on, that. on video game music and all that, that kind of okay, stuff. Okay, great. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so Conductor comes out. She basically bows and then stands up onto the podium Mm -hmm. and i do think she had a screen beside her and while it would not surprise me at all that there was like tempo beating visually on the screen i think there was also some kind of like cues that she could hit a button and then like almost like activate the next cue um related to the hologram and so i'll i'll get to why i think oh that would be amazing like if she was cueing the hologram but with a button Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So so then we're sitting there and everybody claps. And the first thing they did actually was play the overture to Rossini's La Gazzaladra, which... That's random. I was sitting there like, okay, okay. if it were me, I would have picked Barber Overture because it's much catchier, in my opinion, mm-hmm. than La Gazzaladra. But whatever. So they opened with this like orchestral piece. And then the next thing up was Maria. And... So she literally just appeared, right? <laughs> like and didn't walk I out on to, stage as a no, hologram. No, did not walk she out on flickers stage. Onto, just pops up like a ghost appearing in your room, like list appearing to Rosemary Brown. Oh, what a good throwback. 
<laughs> yeah. So, and of course, as soon as she appears, the audience went nuts. Everyone was just like, <gasps> and like there were some people who were like, La Divina, oh, right? No. Like it was a whole other level of amazement that I don't think I've ever experienced and oh so people God. people were excited they were they were there for it they were there for it okay. they were very excited and then i was sitting there looking at it for a lot of the concert it was aside from like me attempting to like lose myself in it cuz i really wanted to like have that experience mm-hmm. of buying into the suspension of disbelief and all of this and did you ever there was one aria that i really liked um <laughs> just one <laughs> yeah like i enjoyed the whole thing but in terms of me coming close to suspending my disbelief buying into the idea that this might not be a hologram she's she could be real mm-hmm. there was only one aria that i really felt like i got close to that partially i think it was i was distracted by really trying to figure out how they did this and and so a lot of the time i was like looking at her gestures and her movements and what was projected. And they did a really, really good job of making her look 3D. But I am 99.999% positive that that is a 2D projection Mm -hmm. of her at the end of the day. It's not actually a 3D projection of her or not a 3D manifestation of her. And I don't even know like technology that exists to actually do a true hologram in the sense of like a Star Trek holodeck type hologram. Right, like not, right? In, not in this universe. Right. Like in Star Wars. Right. Right. Like, and, and I was kind of really expecting her to basically be confined to some kind of physical space. But I was really imagining like, you know, Princess Leia, like, help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only Exactly. Help. When right. you mentioned this, that's what I thought it was going to be. But it was yeah. more like a projection. It was like a flat projection. It was definitely a 2D projection. And they did a lot of work to try and mask the fact that it was a 2D mm-hmm. projection. And so they had some kind of swirling lights in the background to mask any light bleed from the projection. And I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure it was a, a very thin scrim or screen at like in front of the orchestra that you oh, couldn't okay. really see from the audience. Gotcha. But I'm fairly certain that's how they did it. And then there was also, she walked back and forth on like a horizontal line at the front of the stage in within a small space, a small distance. She never walked like backwards or forwards. So they didn't really give you a good sense of like depth perception in that way. And it was very interesting because most of the time she looked like a solid image, but then every once in a while, it would, from where I was sitting, an arm or part of her holographic body would like overlap or cross kind of a sight line with the conductor's moving arms. And then you could see the conductor's hand moving like through the image of Callus. Mm-hmm. And there were times where you could see the monitor that was sitting on the floor by the conductor, like through her dress. And you could see part the orchestra players, depending on what angle you were looking at. So even though I didn't necessarily expect her to be a replication of <laughs> biomass of Maria Callas, it was still what? it was still one of those things where you were like, con- to me, I was constantly reminded that she wasn't real, mm-hmm. right? Because mm. you can see it's just, it's light projected. And then every so often she would move in a certain way that just made it very obvious that she was 2D. And so her hands didn't always look right. And part of it was just because the angle that they had the hologram or projection move didn't quite like the hand didn't maintain its like natural shape and it was because it was just suddenly obvious that she was very 2d Mm. and they had in the auditorium kind of suspended from the balcony they had maybe like 20 projectors that were spaced all the way around so it's some kind of like multi-projector image so that no matter where you were sitting in the audience, you could get a sense that she was maybe 3D, but she actually wasn't. It was a 2D projection, just many projections from different angles around the auditorium that were trying to give this effect. But essentially it was on to like a flat flat scrim or screen. You so heard it a- here, folks. 
It's a total lie. <laughs> it's fake. I mean, this is this is totally. She wasn't really there. Me hypothesizing how I think they did it, and I haven't gotten any confirmation from mm-hmm. Base Hologram, the program or the company that created this. So beyond the technological aspect, mm-hmm. like musically, how how was it? Well, oh, oh, no, like it's it's not. I should preface this all with saying, like, it was not bad. Great. (laughs) Like, you know, it could have been a total train wreck. Mm -hmm. Like, it could have been awful. But it was not bad. And there were times where I thought it was quite beautiful. Um, She sang an aria from, I think it was Tomas Hamlet. Is he the one who wrote that, the version of Hamlet that's almost never... Mm -hmm done she sang an excerpt from that which was really beautiful but i think in addition to like the 2d elements reminding you that she's not real it was also like a to me a very stark obvious contrast between the acoustic orchestra and a recorded Mm -hmm. voice and so i think they really tried to almost like even out the difference between the two because they did mic the orchestra so you could hear the orchestra pumped through the sound system and i don't think they needed to do that for acoustics i think they needed to do it to try and bridge that like sonic timbral difference between a recorded voice and an acoustic orchestra and and also to balance like the the volume of the recording itself and so it was it was a little bit odd in that sense also because you could tell that the orchestra was like locked into aligning with this Mm -hmm. recording and so the reason i think there were like cues that you could hit as the conductor to almost begin the next segment because there was a whole section that was supposed to be excerpts from Carmen. And in the program, it had listed the overture, then the habanera, and then the card aria. And the overture, they started it. And within like one or two phrases, the whole orchestra just petered off really haphazardly. What? And then the conductor like flipped ahead a ton of pages really quickly. And then the habanera started like that. So I think... Some cue she went wrong. Clicked the button. Yeah, like, she, no. like somebody actually accidentally hit the button or advanced a little bit too far, and then it was clear that it actually wasn't the overture that they were about to hear. It like it was actually a habanera that was coming, and so it was just such an odd cutoff mid Toreador theme in the overture. It's like bum. So it was just one of those things where I thought something went wrong Mm -hmm. and it just shows you the inflexibility of that kind of performance. So there was there was that. But I think the thing that really was intriguing for me to watch was the gestures of the hologram, because everybody talks about how if you had seen Callus, you would understand Mm -hmm. why people loved her so much. Right. And. She was very dramatic, and I've watched a lot of video footage of her. So watching the hologram, I could tell that when they created that hologram, they studied footage of her really closely. Mm -hmm. So a lot of her arm movements and her head movements were very callous-like. Like, they were very believable. But it almost felt like a limited repertory of gestures, if that makes sense. (laughs) And so... There was this thing where there's this really famous video of her. I think she sang Casta Diva on TV with like on Rye Television, which is like the Italian station. And you can find it on YouTube. And she stands with like her arms crossed. I know you can't see me listeners, but like imagine like just crossing your arms in an X across your chest. And she kind of like hugs herself as she's singing and in that recording of Casta Diva, she does that. And it's partially masked by like a, a, an elaborate scarf that she's wearing. But you can tell that she's kind of holding herself with arms crossed in front of her chest. And she did this, the holographic version of Maria did this, but she did this a lot in the holographic mm. concert. And I thought like, yeah, I know she sang like that in that one recording, but I I. I didn't see her live. I don't know. And maybe I haven't watched enough footage of her to know. I didn't think she did that all the time. Right. But it just that was a thing that they kept reverting back to 
was this posture of kind of hugging yourself as you sing. And after like one or two arias, it just felt so repetitive that that was how she was performing. And I kind of felt, did she do this all the time? Was this her thing? I don't, I don't really know, but it just seemed so limiting for a singer who was known to be this like incredibly expressive Mm-hmm. performer and I think the aria that I liked best part of why I liked it was because she didn't do that at all in the recording and her gestures were much more I feel like involved in the aria itself and so that was just this odd thing that I couldn't figure out why they made that choice in the moment I couldn't figure it out because I just didn't know enough right so that was something that I spent a lot of time thinking about like the gestures of singing and and how she was the hologram was extremely dramatic if she ever turned if there was like a crescendo and like a really aggressive note that she sang like it was so over the top and dramatic and I thought to myself like if I watched a singer do this today would I be all in would Mm -hmm. I be into it right and it's really hard for me to tell because I almost feel like it's like a generational aesthetic thing where she kind of captured the nostalgia of that generation and because I never saw her live it it didn't hit me like the same way that I think it hit a lot of the people in the audience so I was thinking about it after and I thought if someone is putting on a concert of Deanna Damrau who's my favorite Mm -hmm. soprano and like a holographic version of Damrau now and I've seen her live I love watching her live if I go and see a hologram of her you know, 50 years from now, I might be over the moon too. Like I might be so (laughs) into it because I have that nostalgic memory of her. It might be super compelling if you saw her live and you can basically just merge memories with the holographic experience, right? But for me, while it was fascinating to see and it was, you know, really good in a lot of ways, I also felt like I was not enjoying it in the same way that a lot of the rest of the audience was. I was enjoying it for different reasons. I was like fascinated by the culture of it, the audience reaction, the technology. It's just kind of crazy to me to think that we're at the point where people really want to go see holograms of of dead performers on stage. So, which I just think is this strange technological moment that we're living in that you can go in and see that, which has never been possible before Mm -hmm. so i'm hearing the takeaways are (laughs) that it's great for nostalgia Mm -hmm. maybe not the most moving experience if you didn't originally experience that artist live Mm -hmm. uh but certainly an interesting phenomenon Yes, but I do think on top of that, it gives me a little bit of insight into why people love her so much because she certainly was dramatic on stage. And, you know, she was 110% invested. She was expressive. She was all of those things. And I guess for me, it just felt like there's so many other very good singers that are very expressive and magnetic on stage and gorgeous and beautiful and still alive still alive and interpret like <laughs> interpret music in this like a hundred they give a hundred and ten percent of themselves right I still mm-hmm. feel like there's a lot of performers today that do that and so much of whether you enjoy it or buy into it or are moved by it really comes down to just like personal preference about the voice if if especially like professional opera singers are like we were talking about this earlier they're all good right like right. they're all good right. they've all reached that level except for that one that's terrible they suck <laughs> except for that one you know you know which one i'm talking about <laughs> yeah, that one that one i love that everybody listening to this will instantly think of like oh yeah and they, <laughs> they have their own person exactly. eight like like 80 percent, 90 percent of the performers that are at that level they're all good right and so it's kind of like comparing luxury cars, right? Yeah. How a you lot of judge it, beyond yeah. that is, is really just down to your own personal preference. Personal preference. You know? And so it, people who love Maria Callas will love the hologram concert. And Well, well let's listen yeah. to some Maria Callas. Let's listen to the Casta Diva 
the epic one that the arms folded over <laughs> epic one and we can probably can we go out to that is there anything else that you need to add naomi I mean, I was going to say, if you're interested, you could check it out because it's a tour. But apparently the only dates were in Vancouver and then in Tokyo. I think it already had gone through other places. Oh, really? Or no, there yeah. was, a, it, it, or maybe there was a movie or something. It was several years ago, actually. Like it's existed mm. for a little while. Oh, okay. And so I think it was in Chicago once and it's it's been in Boston, I think, and other places. It's never come to New York. I say it like like it's not like do I say she? The it? New York Times called it. Well, I thought you meant it like the performance. The performance, yes. The New York Times called it strangely captivating. <laughs> strangely, <laughs> which is the quote well, on the website. Go. So yes, there you go. There were a lot of people as they were leaving the theater and during intermission talking about how it was like wonderful but creepy but wonderful but creepy mm-hmm. and so yeah. and I'd been talking about being curious to see how close it comes to the uncanny valley because in in technology and in artificial intelligence there's this thing that we call the uncanny valley where we know that when you're trying to basically like replicate a lifelike thing if you come really close to it being convincingly real but then it fails to convince a person in some regard, then the person can fall into what we call the uncanny valley, which is that like your psychological, emotional reaction, your brain actually reacts negatively to the thing because they've almost failed to convince you or they've thwarted the illusion that is initially set up. But is this the uncanny valley? Because even though it is a 2D image, it is of an actual it's footage taken of an actual person right but we like the theory applies not just to artificial things like it was first developed thinking about like artificial limbs or hands or things like that but it also applies to robots and Mm -hmm. cyborgs and so there's a holograms and and holograms so there's the Maria callus so there's the idea that if you're led to believe it's real and you initially buy into it being real and then something happens and you're like oh it's this this person is actually not real then you can you can have this like gut reaction and so the theory is that you either have to be so far before the uncanny valley where it's very clear from the get-go that they're not real like a disney cartoon like a disney cartoon right that you're never even like you never even suspect that they might be real then you won't fall into the uncanny valley. You can buy into the illusion of the cartoon or the mm-hmm. image. Or it has to be so perfect that there's no reason for you to doubt, right? So I think I was wondering where the boundary would be with this particular hologram. And I think because I was so aware the whole time that she wasn't real, to me it wasn't really creepy. Because mm-hmm. I, I always just felt like I was watching a video of her, right? But I think some people maybe didn't experience the hologram in the same way I did. And so they they felt it was more real perhaps than I did. And then they got this kind of creepy vibe of like, it's like beautiful, but creepy, but beautiful, but creepy. So I think that's fair. Yeah. We got to listen to some Maria Callas. Yeah. Maria Callas. Maria Callas. I feel like I'm making it up every time that I say it. Callas. I think it's Callas. Yeah, we need to listen to some Maria Callas. Uh, Before that, let us know what you think about hologram performances. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and let us know if you're for it, if you're against it. (laughs) Also, let us know if you like this episode by going on to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave a review. That would be great. And perhaps lastly, but most importantly... Let us know that you love the podcast by going to patreon.com slash operaafterdark and support the continuation of the podcast there. Naomi, thank you so much for sharing your experience. Yes. You are most welcome. Thank you for going. I think there are yeah. little YouTube clips from the companies that have put on this performance so you can get a little bit of a sense of what it looked like. Mm-hmm. If you search Maria Callas hologram, it will pop up excellent and we'll be back with you all next week talking about something else from the opera world but until then i'm kyle 
I'm Naomi. And I'm Elspeth. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.
Thank <laughs> you.